Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's story is Small Town Opera. Written and narrated by Tashni Perry. Settle in and enjoy. The neighbor's bar and grill was across from the Phillips 66 on the edge of town. Really, all parts of town were on the edge. One gas station, one bar, a family dollar, and a pizza hut. There used to be a Dairy Queen when Peter was growing up, but that had closed years ago after the family that owned it moved to Omaha. It wasn't even a town, really, just a place centrally located between farms and grain mills and the meatpacking factory. It was a nice place to grow up, though. Every spring there was a flower festival. There were contests for biggest, best color, and most exotic. Not that any of that had interested him. His mom had participated one year, but she'd complained the whole time because the flowers had to be grown inside. Nebraska spring couldn't be relied upon until at least mid-May, and the festival was Memorial Day weekend. Peter was 11 when his mom, Gloria, had grown her daisies. She grumbled every time she had to water them or move them out of the living room and into the back bedroom because they were hosting their church group. But he also remembered watching her smile at the little stem pushing through the dirt and the tiny buds balanced above the growing leaves, and the delicate revelation of the soft white and pink petals. She didn't win any awards, but Peter knew it hadn't been about that. It had been in honor of his grandma, who had always participated, and who had died that winter. Grandma deserves flowers, his mom had said when she'd carried in the envelope of seeds and cracked ceramic pot. After the awards each year, the whole town paraded down to the graveyard and placed the flowers on the gravestones of their loved ones. This was important to grown-ups, but it was always hard for Peter to stay quiet and respectful when he wanted to run to the rides and games being set up back on Main Street. He was especially good that year, though, even watering the flowers on the days his mother had forgotten, because she wanted Grandpa's and Grandma's graves decorated. 
After Spring Festival, Prairieville held Summer Splash, then Harvest Festival, then the Christmas Pageant, and then everyone went inside for several months and drank too much until it was time to find seeds for the Spring Festival again. The festivals had always been his mother's thing. As a kid, Peter liked them too because he ate candy by the handfuls and drank only orange pop. When the rides and games were lame or when he and his friends were too old for them, they would sneak away, usually to the Dairy Queen, at least while it was still open. He'd held Amy's hand there for the first time, the skin below his shorts sticking to the booth as he tried to slide close enough for their fingers to casually touch. Once he'd graduated high school, things were different. Most of his high school buddies were still around, but a lot of them had kids now, or drinking problems that could no longer be excused by age. Peter had left, briefly, for an electrician apprenticeship, but he'd never really considered staying away for good. Prairievale was his home, crazy festivals and empty ice cream chain stores and all. He and his mom always went together, though she never grew flowers for the spring festival again. Turns out they sell daisies in the store, she told him. So they began driving to Walmart, a town over, to pick up flowers the night before. She never entered the store's flowers in the contest, but they did join the parade and laid them on his grandparents' graves. Peter thought maybe he should have participated in the spring festival this year, maybe even grown his own flowers. Amy had offered to help, but he couldn't walk in that parade without his mom. He'd never missed a spring festival before. Even when he was in Omaha for his electrician apprenticeship, he'd come back for it because his mom had asked him to. Only if your boss doesn't mind, she'd said on the phone. He considered lying, but it wasn't a big deal, and she didn't ask for favors except on festival days. He was pretty sure she had been disappointed when he moved back after receiving his electrician's license. Excited to have him back, of course, but disappointed he'd failed to escape. She'd never said any of this out loud, but Peter heard it in her tone. Maybe it was because his mom didn't belong in Prairieville. She did all the things the other women did. Cook, sew, grow and can her own vegetables. But she didn't scavenge for dress patterns at the church garage sale or experiment with different spice combinations while pickling her cucumbers. There was no excitement in any of it for her only duty. I was going to be an opera singer, she told Peter when he was ten, before I married your father and had you. Most people in Prairieville, including Peter, didn't have dreams that included things outside of Prairieville. They liked recognizing people in town and making dirt clouds behind their cars and the cool nights full of stars and chirping crickets. Big cities were for weekend visits or extra special shopping trips. There were plenty of homes and businesses that needed help with electrical issues in Prairieville. It had everything Peter needed, but it didn't have an opera house, or concert hall, or anything else that wasn't a church basement, and no one knew who Pavarotti was or why Puccini's Madame Butterfly was always best when the costumes and set were traditional. Maybe that's why his mom had a Before I Die list. Before I Die... I'm going to visit the Met, 
Before I die, I'm going to start a poetry book club. Before I die, I'm going to color my hair blue. These were some of the big ones. Then there was a small list. Before I die, I'm going to organize this pantry, return that overdue library book, paint my yellow dining room, get the ladies' circle to come up with something more interesting than a bake sale for fundraising, ask the owner of the neighbor's bar and grill if the spelling error in his name was intentional. Once she was actually dying, the lists disappeared. For a brief moment after her death, Peter thought about finishing her list for her, like some convoluted plot for a made-for-TV movie. He pictured himself bringing home paint samples, driving to New York City in his rusted white Ford pickup truck and urn in his passenger seat. But his mom had been buried, not cremated, and he couldn't see the point of going to New York alone or fixing up a dining room she would never see. Including the name of the neighbors on her Before I Die list had mostly been a joke, but it had driven her crazy, the misspelling. She'd offered to pay him $25 when he was 12 or 13 to ask the bartender if there was a reason for the misspelling. But going inside would have meant breaking the rules, and Peter didn't do that. Probably there was no story behind the name. Probably she had already asked, years ago, and never told him. But he'd been driving past it now for a week on his way home from his latest job, and he'd missed the spring festival, so there were no flowers on his mom's grave. And there was an open letter on the floor of his truck from his old boss, offering him the perfect excuse for never attending another festival again. But was that what he wanted? He hadn't gone to the bar for years. The inside looked exactly the same, a stereotypical small-town dive bar, complete with wobbly-legged tables, cracked red vinyl booth cushions, and mismatched wooden bar stools. The posters and jerseys between the TVs on the wall were the same, too, a faded collection that included paraphernalia from both the local high school and the Huskers' glory years. Everything looked grimy and smelled of stale cooking oil and spilled beer. It was mostly empty except for a small group of road crew guys, orange vests draped over the backs of their chairs, and two graying men sitting three stools apart at the bar. They all looked familiar in the vague way that everyone from Prairieville looked familiar, but he didn't really know them. Peter grabbed the lopsided stool closest to the door and sat at the bar. He pulled the bowl of pub mix toward him and started picking out the rye chips as he waited for the bartender. Coming here was a stupid idea. There was no secret behind the misspelled word, just another unimportant small-town mishap that his mom had somehow made exciting. He pushed away the bowl of pub mix and shoved his left hand into his pocket. There was an electrical wire cap in there, orange, if he remembered correctly. He passed it between his fingers. He should leave, go home, let out his dog, drive over to his dad's and check on him. That would mean more to her. But instead, he slumped farther down into his seat, pulled out the orange cap and began spinning it on the counter. It skittered and bumped as it lost speed before he trapped it under his hand and spun it again. The bartender appeared, 
standing in front of the wall of alcohol on the opposite side of the bar, staring down at her phone. She was younger than he'd expected, and a lot hotter. She wore a low-cut black tank top and tight, strategically ripped jeans. His eyes followed a thin gold chain that traced a line around her collarbone and down into her cleavage. Peter trapped the electrical cap under his palm and glanced around the bar. With the exception of one of the old guys, everyone was staring at the bartender. She didn't look up, but something about the way she held her shoulders pressed back. One raised in a slight shrug told Peter, she noticed. Hey, sweetie, called one of the men from the table. You don't tip well enough to call me that, Joe, she said without looking up. Maybe if you were more attentive. Sounds like a real chicken versus the egg problem. She stuck her phone in her front pocket. Another round? Without waiting for a response, she pulled down one of only two spouts of on-tap beer and filled five plastic cups with Budweiser. Peter watched her walk to the table. Her shirt didn't quite meet the hem of her pants, revealing the bottom of a tattoo on the small of her back. There wasn't a tattoo parlor in town, which didn't mean no one got any, but Peter was pretty sure she wasn't a local. Budweiser? She asked Peter as she walked back towards the bar. Yeah, thanks, he said, slipping the cap back into his pocket. Anything from the kitchen? She asked as she set down his translucent disposable cup, foam flowing over the lip and dripping down the side. No, thanks. She had an ornate purple and pink butterfly tattoo on her right wrist. He stared at it, slightly faded wings as she let go of the cup. That's pretty, he said, looking up. It was a bet. I was 15. He expected her to disappear to the back room, but she stayed, standing in front of him. So he looked back up and said, I'm Peter, by the way. She leaned forward, resting her elbows on the bar. The thin gold chain slipped out of her shirt, revealing a tiny flower pendant. Chicken or egg, Peter? For some reason... Peter found the flower surprising. A uh, egg, I guess? She smiled. Jessica, she said, offering him her hand. Jessica disappeared back into the kitchen and Peter drank his beer. The two older guys at the bar drank with him quietly, but the group at the table was getting louder. Peter wasn't listening to anything they were saying just the increasingly insistent noise of their collective voices. His mom used to call this his superpower, being able to turn any conversation into ambient noise. It drove his dad crazy, though Peter knew he inherited the power from him. It was useful, if not impressive, especially if he wanted to be able to sit and drink without being interrupted by anyone's thoughts. The neighbor's bar and grill used to be called the bar and grill. Peter had been six when they changed it, so he wouldn't have remembered, except that his mother had pointed it out. Vital life lesson, she said to him on one of their walks to the library, pointing at the new block letters above the entrance. His memories were sprinkled with his mother's vital life lessons, always given at odd times for what seemed like odd things. 
As he got older, he decided his mom just liked the sound of the phrase, but he still held on to them. He was glad he had now. That day, her vital life lesson had been always have a friend without a social filter. Why? he'd asked, not knowing what a social filter even was. Because they'll tell you when you're being stupid, preferably before an entire town notices you can't spell. Jessica's phone lit up the fabric of her jean pocket. She pulled it out, read the message, and shoved it into her back one instead. Do you smoke? she asked, setting another beer in front of his almost empty cup. It took him a minute to turn her voice into words, but no, he said. Neither do I. Let's take a non-smoke break. Hours later, Peter sat in the bed of his truck, and Jessica lay beside him. They weren't touching, but he was very aware of how close his fingertips were to her exposed waistline. The night was cool and bright with stars. I have a theory, she said. They were parked just outside of town, next to a cornfield owned by some non-local corporate farm based out of who knows where. Peter pulled another can from the six-pack they'd brought from the bar. About? The chicken and the egg. Which came first? It's not about which you pick. It's about how you say it. No one actually knows the answer. That's the whole point of the question. My theory is that you can separate people into three categories. People who think they know the answer, people who understand there really isn't one, and people who are too stubborn or scared, which is really just the same thing, to answer at all. Which is the worst? Peter popped the can and took a swig. The third one. Which one am I? The second? And you? I just ask the question. So you're outside of the categories? The theorist can't be part of the theory. Jessica's phone buzzed loudly against the truck bed. You gonna answer that? asked Peter. No, he's a number one. Peter lay next to her, folding his hands over his stomach. Do you have any more theories? Her phone buzzed again. Theory number two. There are two reasons to abandon a car on the side of the road. Uh, I'm assuming one is because it's broken. No. Sure, cars can break down and have to be left temporarily, but think about it. If your truck broke down, would you just leave it on the side of the road forever? I guess not. Her phone went off again, ringing an electronically replicated sound of an old landline. What? she said sitting up and sliding off the truck bed, the gravel crunching as she paced. He tuned the words out as she whisper-yelled into the phone. He closed his eyes. He didn't know why he was here. He had a long day tomorrow. His dog had probably peed all over the house unless Amy had gone over to let him out. He wondered what category Amy would fall into in Jessica's chicken or egg theory. Before his mom got sick, he and Amy had been planning their wedding. More accurately, Amy had been planning the wedding and Peter had been going along with it. Amy had offered to move up the wedding, make it smaller so that his mom could be there. 
Peter had suggested they wait until his mom got better. But his mom hadn't gotten better. And now the wedding was just something that floated in the air between them, not quite in the past or the future. He didn't know how much longer Amy would let it stay that way, and he didn't know what he would do if she decided to give him an ultimatum. He was pretty sure he loved her, just not in an urgent way. She was comfortable and kind. She fit here, and so did he. Except he didn't know if that was true anymore, the fitting part. Prairie Bill had been home because his mom had made it home. He felt like one of those helium balloons his mom always hung onto for way too long. Half of the string dragging across the floor, sluggishly drifting. To Amy's, to the bar, to the possibility of Omaha, to Jessica. He knew he'd be stuck wherever he landed. He wasn't ready to be stuck. But he wasn't sure he had enough energy to choose. The truck bed sunk slightly as Jessica climbed back in, her knee nestling between his legs, her breath yeasty and warm against his cheek. He didn't open his eyes, just slid his hands around her waist as she lowered her chest onto his. Her kiss was salty and much softer than he'd expected. I lied, she said, laying her head on his shoulder. I'm a number three. Peter heard the car door slam and then the rumble of tires churning against gravel. He sat up slowly, opening his eyes. The darkness barely changed. Clouds must have rolled in. His back ached from the hard, ribbed floor of his pickup. He slid his hand across the cool plastic next to him. Jessica was gone. He walked around the truck bed and climbed into the front seat leaning his head back against the headrest and reaching beneath him to rescue his phone when it pressed against his thigh. It lit up the cab, the clock reading 2.30. There were three voicemails, five missed calls from Amy, and one text message from an unsaved number. He clicked on it and read, Theory 2, Reason 1. You're running away from something. Peter clicked back to the missed calls and dialed Amy. She picked up after the first ring. Thank God, are you all right? She had obviously still been awake. Yeah, sorry, fell asleep in my truck. Damn it, Peter. I have been freaking out for hours. I know, I'm sorry. This is not okay. I know. Peter paused. Did you happen to go over to let Brian out? Yes. Her voice was clipped and high-pitched. He was pretty sure she was trying not to cry. But Peter, we need to talk. Peter closed his eyes and slipped his hands into his pocket, finding the orange electrical cap with his fingers. Okay. Tomorrow? Or, I guess, tonight? Supper? Sure. At noon, Peter's phone buzzed. Theory two, reason two. You're running toward something. He typed, Wouldn't a car make running towards something easier? He waited, but she didn't answer. 
After work, he stopped by the grocery store to pick up some wine and flowers for Amy. At dinner, when the pork chops came out, so did the ultimatum. I'm moving to Chicago. I want you to come. Peter swallowed, his mouth watering from the salty seasoning. Amy always added too much salt. What? I know this wasn't in our plan, but my friend from Kearney reached out. She was accepted into this program to work at an inner-city school there. I honestly didn't think I'd get in, so I didn't tell you. And then there was your mom. She set down her fork and leaned toward Peter's end of the table. Peter, I love you, but I went into teaching to make a difference, and I'm not sure I can do that here. I thought you liked being able to visit all the same places we did when we were kids. I thought you were happy here. I am happy, and we'll move back someday, but I want to do something first. People don't do things here. Peter took another bite of the pork chop. He did things. His phone buzzed. He glanced at the text. A single word. No. He looked at Amy. My mom was going to be an opera singer, he said. What? Before she got married. Had me. Amy smiled. She always had a beautiful voice. She never really fit in here, but she's stuck here now. I don't think that's how she'd want you to see it. What if I say no? To coming? Amy asked her hand pressed flat against the tabletop. Will you still go? She sighed, tracing the lines gathering on her forehead with her fingers. I haven't signed anything yet. Her voice was quiet now. But this is your dream? Peter, I have a lot of dreams. Peter thought about his mom, singing scales in the shower, Blasting Wagner and Vivaldi until the minivan shook and the women passing by with strollers glared into our tinted windows. Shutting out the chemo with Madame Butterfly. If it's your dream, you should go, he said. We'll figure it out. What does that mean? Peter closed his eyes, slipping his hand into his jean pocket. His mom used to say he fiddled when he was trying to find words. A sharp piece of copper wire jabbed into his middle finger. He pulled his hand out, pressing the prick of blood against his palm. Growing up, his pockets were full of gravel or snail shells or crust dandelions. He would roll them between his fingers, then later find them piled by the laundry room sink. He still forgot to empty his pockets, his washing machine clanking arrhythmically with each load. It was a wonder it still worked. I'm sorry, Amy. I'm tired. I haven't been sleeping well. Can we talk about this tomorrow? You could sleep here. Not tonight, okay? She shoved her chair away from the table and stood, grabbing her plate. I barely see you anymore. He stood more slowly than Amy had and stared down at the edge of the table. Tomorrow. I promise. And Amy? He looked up at her. Congratulations. Peter didn't know where he was going or 
More accurately, Peter wasn't going anywhere. After thirty minutes of driving down random roads, he pulled over and took out his phone. He typed, Theory 2, Reason 3, You're dead. A moment later, his screen lit up. Morbid, but accepted. My mom wanted to be an opera singer. Mine wanted to be a drug addict. Peter stared out of his windshield. The wind murmuring in the cornfield around him. It was always growing and shrinking and being plowed under, but somehow it never seemed to change. His phone buzzed again. Theory three, I would make a terrible mother. Theory four, I'm an ass. Category two people can only be temporary asses. Peter turned his truck back on, but left his headlights off. Everything outside was heavy. The air, the sky, the roll of his engine beneath his seat. Choose, Jessica. Chicken or egg? Two months before she died, Peter, Amy, and his mom and dad all took a road trip together. His mom had wanted to see the redwood forest before she died. Her oncologist wouldn't clear her to fly, so they took a week and drove there. She had to stop a lot. Really, it had been a terrible idea, but you can't say no to a dying person. Vital life lesson, she had said, on an abandoned-looking road somewhere in Nevada. If you're lost, ask for directions. But abandoned roads in Nevada don't have cell service, or people. So they had just kept driving in what turned out to be the wrong direction until they hit a dead end and had to turn around. Better, vital life lesson. Don't get lost. He thought about Omaha and the letter on the floor crumpled with all the other trash, an arm length away. He thought about Chicago and Amy. He could be an electrician anywhere. He could come back to visit when he wanted. People moved away. Maybe not in Prairieville, but in most places. People moved away and came back. Nothing had to be permanent. But sometimes it was. He couldn't move to Chicago. Peter tapped on his phone. My mom is dead. So's mine. Please answer. He stared down at his phone but it didn't light up again. Jessica, chicken or egg? You just listened to Small Town Opera, written by Tashney Perry. And we have Tashney on the show with us today to talk about the story a little bit and her approach to writing and writing in general. So welcome to the show, Tashney. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you on. And of course, as always, we have our co-host, the wonderful voice behind many of our stories, Melissa. Hello. <laughs> Great to have everybody here. All right, Tashney. Well, as always, we kind of kick off the show giving the writers or the authors or the poets an opportunity to introduce themselves. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Of course. So I am a Midwest girl at heart. My mom's family is from Minnesota and my dad's family is from Nebraska, which... Mm. Um, 
definitely influenced the setting of the story. Yeah, could tell. Um, yeah, I grew up here in Omaha uh, all the way through college. And then my husband got a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which don't judge my geography skills. But before <laughs> I knew we were moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'd never heard of Albuquerque. <laughs> so we drove um, across the country and relocated. And there were a ton of things I loved about living in the Southwest. The winter doesn't last six months. Uh, green <laughs> yeah. chili is fantastic. And of course, all three of my kiddos were born there. So it has a special place in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really hard being separated from my people here in Nebraska. Mm. Um, I am for sure a homebody. Uh. And um, so I, I had this moment, probably I had several of these moments, but I recall one, at least one of my kiddos was behind me in the car. And I remember having this thought of if I disappeared, no one would know for like months, except hmm. for my immediate family, because I just didn't have anyone there. Mm -hmm. And so motherhood for me in New Mexico was really isolating. Oh, wow. And my husband kept telling me to join like mom's groups, but <laughs> surprise, surprise, I don't like social situations where I'm meeting new people. I know that's really weird for an, a writer, but <laughs> I'm an introvert. So I didn't really want to do that. I did eventually. It was good advice. My husband was right. I should, you know, meet human beings. But um, <laughs> before I did that, I returned to writing. Mm -hmm. It was something that as I was growing up, I used to figure out questions, be inspired, learn things about myself. So that's what I did. I first started with a young adult um, novel that is currently collecting metaphorical dust on <laughs> my computer. Dust uh, computer bites. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I got connected with a mom's blog down there and I was a contributor for them. I contributed bi-monthly and eventually became an editor for them. And I really kind of connected again with this piece of me that I didn't realize that I was missing, but I really, really was. Hmm. And so for that reason, I'm kind of grateful for the isolation because I think sometimes we get into a routine and when we're pushed out of the routine, we learn things about ourselves. Sure. Uh, and then we did eventually move back to Nebraska because like I said, I was a homebody. <laughs> <laughs> I Eventually my husband caved and we moved back here. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I did was enroll in the University of Nebraska at Omaha's MFA program to just kind of further my craft and reestablish this love for writing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where this story came from. It was one of my pieces in my thesis. Mm -hmm. So, okay. yeah. Cool. That's well, me. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You describe uh, small towns well. I felt like. From reading the story, I felt like you had some experience there, not knowing anything about you. You know what I mean? So you did a good job with that. Yeah, that's made up. I've never lived in a small town, but oh. I've driven through lots oh, of them. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So. Well, don't you have to get through a small town to get anywhere? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yes. Yeah. That's right. 
Fun, fun. Well, um, so tell us about the story itself. So it's part of your thesis. It was a collection of stories. Tell us a bit more about that and, and, and some of, and as much as you can about this specific story and what inspired you to write it. Yeah. So my collection of stories is uh, a collection of stories about the influences of motherhood, both mostly from the mom's perspective, but in this case, from the loss of that influence. Um, my main character recently lost his mom. Uh, yeah. really before he knew who he was and so how that influences him. Uh, and I started writing this story because in my last semester of my MFA, I told my professor that I hadn't actually written anything from a male perspective. And she looked at me, she's like, well, that's probably going to have to change. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I chose or I, I was kind of forced to write from the male sparks. I'm excited or I excuse me, I am um, grateful that I was because it was a really cool experience. But this story started with a really random question that I had. I was driving down the interstate here in Omaha and there was a, an abandoned car on the side of the road. And of course I'd driven past a ton of abandoned cars before, but for whatever reason, it struck me on that day and I wondered, why in the world someone would abandon what looked like a completely functional car. And I decided, oh, I'm going to write a story about that. Hmm. Um, it didn't actually end up really being about that. A lot of my stories. <laughs> it's the way things go sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. The characters take over and they tell their story and you're like, oh, well, I guess, I guess that's the story I was actually supposed to write. <laughs> yeah, right. But but the idea of abandoning a car was um, the first thing that started the story off. And then the other thing that I kind of pulled from my own life was the bar in the story is misspelled the neighbor's bar and grill. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a really rundown shack of a bar really close to my high school that was called the neighbors misspelled bar and grill. Oh, and I oh. always wondered why in the world they didn't fix that. And as far as I know, it's still misspelled. <laughs> I drove past it. It's been a while because I'm not in high school anymore. But yeah, <laughs> I just wondered if there was ever a story behind there. I, yeah. That I don't know. But So you did not yourself go find out the answer either. I didn't, no. So this Again. was very cathartic. You, know, you yeah, had to get it onto go. the page because it bothered you so much. I like that. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, well, you said that writing kind of became a piece of you that you d didn't know was missing until you got back into writing and that you discover more pieces. You discover pieces of yourself. Sorry. Um, you discover pieces of yourself when you are writing. So did you learn anything about yourself in this piece when you were writing this piece? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for this particular piece, I learned more about myself as a writer than I did about myself as a person, if that makes any sense. Yes. Um, so I think I mentioned this before, but I, I started both with that idea, but also just with a setting in mind I thought it would be interesting if the abandoned car, which of course never actually made it onto the page, was abandoned 
on like a dirt road somewhere in the middle of nowhere so that the fact that it was abandoned was a bigger issue. Yeah. And so I thought it would be fun to set it in small town and I'm from Nebraska. So small town, Nebraska seemed to make sense for me. And really the first iteration of this story was really just a setting. Um, Mm -hmm. There wasn't much story to it. And as I worked on it more, the, the characters kind of, brought the story out and it was a very I it didn't go as planned I guess is what I mean to say and it was really fun to write a story that way just let it flow and the let the characters create what was happening on the page that's not something that um I typically do Hmm. and so it was fun to discover that I enjoyed that part of, or that, that way of writing. Yeah. So it was kind of the first time where you lost some of your control. And as a writer, I think that's a fun, yeah, a fun thing to happen when you can let your characters, like you said, your characters take over. And it's, if, if you haven't written a story to have that happen and to learn about these characters, because in, in my stories that I write, I sometimes forget that they're not real people. I was driving down the road and I was thinking about some of my characters and and I was thinking about, oh, who would play them in a movie? Of course, because my book is going to be made into a movie one day. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I was, that was right after I was practicing my speech, you know, the awards I will win. (laughs) I'm kidding (laughs) about that part. I am serious about thinking about the movie characters, but you know, and I was thinking, wait a minute, they can't play themselves for this, for this weird few seconds. I was thinking, well, I just need to find them. And it was there was this disconnect in my mind, like, oh, somebody has to play my characters because they don't actually exist. And it was exciting right. and also disheartening at the same time, because it's like you get to know these people. And so for them to kind of um, hijack the narrative, I think is a really fun, fun thing to happen. Yeah, and for definitely. you to lose yourself. And if that's what you experience through this story, that that's a really that's a treasure, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things that I like about this story, and then we'll move on to some of the other questions, um, though, is that you, and if, if readers aren't paying attention, they might not catch it, but um, is that uh, Jessica's theories on the chicken and egg uh, business, and then she tells uh, Peter that she's a, a three, which are the people that are too afraid to answer or won't answer or whatever, I won't admit it. And then he, you know, and at the end of the book, he or the story, I should say, he, you know, he asks her, he's like, he's like kind of demanding that she answer, and she's not going to because she told him she's a three, which I thought was right. a really creative way of um, kind of weaving that into your story and having it end on that because it's sort of like not going to happen. <laughs> right. Did you do that on purpose or did that just sort of flow out of that creative process? So I definitely ended it that way on purpose. The whole chicken and egg theory was something that imaginary Jessica, who definitely lives out there somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. I just haven't met her. Of course. Um, came up with. But I enjoy ending my stories not in the middle of something, but almost in the middle of something. So that because maybe because the characters are so real for me, their lives existed before and after the story. And so I really Hmm. enjoy ending my stories in a way that seems like they could flow forward. Um, Because in my mind, obviously, my characters exist for this story takes place for two days. So Mm -hmm. 
over two days. So my characters exist for after that two days. So I like ending my stories in a way that flows with that idea. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. cool. That is... What do you think? Are you going to continue with these characters and then the no. other stories? Okay. No, I just like people. They to exist, be able but to... they just walk away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonder what they're doing now. Right. <laughs> Probably they're still lost. Yeah. Poor yeah. Jessica's stuck in that bar still. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, you you love to write. That's obvious. But what about your first story? And I mean, this story has been really fun. And this kind of sounded like it came toward the end of your MFA as you were really developing some writing legs. What yeah. about your very first one? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the first story I distinctly remember writing was maybe all of three pages long. I <laughs> thought it was, you know, the next great novel. And it was about <laughs> a dinosaur that I rode to school. And I wrote it on that um, school paper where the top half is like left blank so that you can draw your lovely pictures. And the bottom half is maybe three or four lines worth of that big uh, writing. Yeah. Well, I'm still writing on that paper. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Ah, that explains a lot. I definitely have some of that paper in my house. I can't yeah. say that I write on it, but you know, I have it there for my kiddos. Yeah, same, um, same. Yeah, but so I wrote this story and I was so proud of it. And my family went to school. I think it must have been for an open house or something. And my teacher had put the story on the, like displayed out in the hallway as parents came in. And I remember looking at that story out in the hallway and going, Oh my goodness, this is it. This is what I'm yeah. going to do. There is my amazing story that I wrote. That is the probably going to be part. made into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to find and the dinosaur to play. Your exactly. Character. Exactly. I'm pretty sure he was green. Oh. Um, I'm sure that was very important detail to get right course, in the movie. But yeah, so I, saw that there and I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a writer. And of course that doesn't stick with you because overpraised seven-year-old have a lot of confidence that, you know, you (laughs) tend to lose as you approach adulthood. Um, But I'm, I'm really grateful that I rediscovered that spark that I had previously discovered in grade school. And here we are. That's fun. I think that's I think that's true for a lot of writers that I have heard interviewed, not necessarily ones that we have done on the show, but yeah, that you have that sort of you understand writing in your core somehow when you're young, probably because you're reading so much and it's affecting, you know, you're learning from it and and you're seeing things and 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 anyway, Um, but then somehow as you get older, you just sort of get away from that, and then as you come back. you have more time or job choices or whatever. And then you sort of say, Hey, well, what about that feeling and that experience? And you get back into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of that, I loved my high school, but we, we wrote so many papers Mm. and I think you lose some of that love when you're, at least for me, I am not a writer who loves to write academic papers. (laughs) I'm sure they're out there somewhere, definitely. but that is not me. And so I think, for a while in high school, it was just writing a lot of papers and not and and losing some of that love that I had in grade school. And then college, you get busy and 
motherhood. I don't know if you guys know. That's yes. pretty hectic. Oh, yeah. But then uh, rediscovering that was a lot of fun for sure. Well, good. Yes. Good. Well, I am curious because actually in this set of interviews that we'll have coming up uh, for this edition, a lot of the writers have uh, gone through the MFA process. And so since you have, I don't know if that was recent or not. I don't remember if, um, when that happened for you. Yeah. So I graduated a year, a year and a half ago. Oh, okay, good. So that was pretty yeah. recent. Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, um, do you, could you, I guess, tell our listeners and or, you know, aspiring writers and readers, you know, what... What did you find beneficial from going through that process? Or is there any cons from going through that process? And um, yeah, just give us your thoughts on the getting an MFA. For sure. So I think um, there are a lot of different types of programs that you can go through. Mine was what's called a low residency program. So I can speak to that one specifically. Uh, some MFA programs are the more traditional sense where you go into the classrooms and mm -hmm. you take a certain number of classes every semester. Mm -hmm. Um, the low residency or the low residency present, I cannot speak the low <laughs> residency program that I went through at UNO, basically once a semester, we did what came across as like a writing retreat. So we would go and, um, lecturers would come and talk about different, all, you know, anything you can imagine to do with writing. And then throughout the semester, you worked one-on-one -on -one with a mentor uh, and submitted writing. Interesting. And for me, that type of program worked super, super well for a couple reasons. First of all, it, it worked as I also stayed home with my kiddos. Um, it worked with my schedule, uh, but it also really helped to immerse me into that writing process during the residencies. Uh, I have a hard time when I'm at home or even when I'm in the same city where I function on a normal basis to sit down and really focus on learning craft and stretching myself. There's just so many other things that pull at my attention. So I really loved leaving for 10 days and focusing on writing and writing alone. Uh, and I think that particular way of learning just helped build that craft so much faster than it would have if I had gone and sat through classes and then had my attention kind of divided in between lots of different classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that I loved about it is you were really in charge of what you wrote and what you submitted. So I could see how... I don't know what I'm about to say here. Sorry. I lost my train of thought. Not a worry. Apparently I can't see anything because it's gone. Um, I think sometimes as we study craft, and this isn't necessarily a negative thing, but we imitate. So we imitate what we read um, and what we are taught in um, the classroom. So you end up with maybe hopefully temporarily a voice that's not your voice yeah. necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, I think that can potentially be an issue if you are going to an MFA. I feel like I didn't experience that because it was, so, I had so much agency over what I wrote. So they gave me reading lists which were 
phenomenal um, because all the mentors were so well read. But because I was in charge of everything I was writing, there wasn't a specific type of writing they were looking for. I feel like I was able to stretch my legs um, craft wise without sounding like someone who wasn't me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I think that a lot of writers experience that when you, if you're reading an author and you're reading a lot of their stories, you kind of get a voice into your head. And then when you write a story, whether you want to or not, that voice sort of, you know, presents itself. Uh, I don't necessarily mean it's like a copy, but somehow that, you know, that author's style might influence your style. And then you'll write that way for a little while and then change over something else. I think that's pretty normal and right. okay, honestly. I think yeah, it's a good way I to explore so voices. Yeah. 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 There's no way you can make a complete copy of anything. Mm -hmm. You just have to be too within that person's head. So you're you're enough within yourself that you're it's never going to be a complete copy. Everything your voice is going to transfer through that author's work even. Mm -hmm. And so you get kind of a maybe a melding and, and maybe even a shifting of like finding what your place is by using that by using others work if if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think um, so. My my father is also a writer, uh, and when I was first starting my big novel, that again is sitting on my hard drive, um, <laughs> there was this anxiety of writing something that has already been written, and he kind of told me he's like, you know, all the stories have really the category of stories have really all been told. So yeah. mm -hmm. you just have to write the story that's in your head, in your voice, and that will come across. Um, and he really encouraged me to stop worrying about being um, completely unique because that kind of takes care of itself. And I love that yeah. advice. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a good point. It is. Well, good. So you would, would you recommend an MFA for uh, folks out there? Or, or Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you can, um, with or without an MFA, you can be a writer and you can improve your craft. You can go to, um, I love going to writing retreats and writing workshops and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The beauty about the MFA is it, at least for me, it was really concentrated. So I felt like my craft grew quickly over that two years because mm -hmm. I was so focused on it. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that really helped was deadlines <laughs> outside right. of the MFA. I kind of, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I kind of flounder because no one's waiting for my packet to come in and no one's right. emailing me saying, Tash me, where's that next story that you owe me? Because no one's waiting for it. Right, so right. yeah, those deadlines and that, um, intensive focus, I think is really helpful. Yeah, that's, that's good. That makes a good point. I think another, another way of learning is through reading. And so what do, sure. you, what do you like to read? What do you, are, you, are you reading anything particular now? Yeah, so currently I'm reading The Night Watchman okay. um, by Louise Erdrich, um, which I am loving. But I don't, I read all things. <laughs> so I don't That's have a good. specific genre or um, author that I look for. What I enjoy reading is just a story well told. So um, I want to connect emotionally yeah. um, and I want the writing to be about the story and not about how cool 
intellectual the author can sound. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes you read things and you're like, congratulations, you know, really big words. And that's cool. That is, you know, that's a talent in and of itself. But for me as a reader, I connect to authors who put the story before all else. But I read, I mean, I read a lot of, I read fiction, I read nonfiction, I read literary fiction, I read young adult fantasy, anything that's a good story um, and that I can connect with emotionally, I'm there. That's great. That's great. That's cool. You know, that reminds me, I was recently having a discussion with my writing group and talking about what makes, as we're evaluating different works of fiction, you know, what makes one book work better than maybe, say, another one. One thing that kind of keeps coming up as you're evaluating and looking at how did this person do this is the idea of seams. What you were talking about makes me think of this conversation because a good writer doesn't show the seams. You know, you can't see their seams yeah. in the writing. You know, if you are struggling, if an, if a an writer is struggling, you can see the seams of where they're trying to put things together, where they're trying to make these ideas get from one to, place to another and maybe they're using those big words um and they're you know they're they're focusing on the language too much you see that their effort and if you can see the effort you get pulled out of the story for sure so if you can Hmm. get rid of those seams you can you're oblivious to being in the story you're that you're reading a story you're just in it and so i think that is what you said made me think of that conversation wow that's really that's a really neat uh analogy yeah was that something your group came up with or is, is that that's amazing. I and mean, was that like something they read, someone read in the group? Because that's terrific. <laughs> I, I don't know if I stole it from someone or if I came up with it myself. Oh, yeah. I don't know, but it probably I stole it from someone, just didn't realize it. <laughs> you should trademark but, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, TM. <laughs> Which it probably it wasn't even mine. Because, you know, you, you go through the day and you pick up things and yeah. you forget where you pick them up from. You just you just hang it on and um, <laughs> yeah, put it one on of your my... knapsack. Yeah, for sure. One of my favorite um, young adult authors talks about something similar. Um, She talks about, don't let your audience see you moving the furniture behind the scenes. Exactly. So that same idea. Cool. Very cool. Well, believe it or not, we are already coming up on time here. Um, So I am going to steal Melissa's question. This is one that she often asks our uh, authors and poets. And um, so do you have a writing quirk, something that you would think you, you is special to you um, that you have to do before you write or you have to be in a certain place before you write or you have to have a drink or anything? Yeah. For some reason, it's my favorite. It's my favorite <laughs> it is, question. Yeah. I really want to ask everybody this question, but I fear it's like, no, I don't really have one. And that's okay if you don't, if you're just... A writer, but now the pressure's on. Tell us something strange yeah. you do when you're writing. Or just come <laughs> up with it, right? Just right, make right. It yeah, up. yeah. We're all writers. Make Completely it up. just <laughs> fabricate something because I need this. <laughs> no, okay. So I have a lot of writing friends who like make play like playlists as they write. Yes. Um, I cannot do that. Uh, so my undergraduate was in music education and they really beat out of you this idea of passive listening to music. So like anytime music is on, I have to like analyze it. Ah. So what I did to like kind of shut things out when I really need to focus on writing is I find like rain, like the like noisemaker rain. And I put my headphones in and I listen to rain. Um, And then I eat. You did not disappoint. 
Oh, yeah. Is there more? Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the only other one is I eat a lot of junk food. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Junk food is my fuel. <laughs> Do you yeah. eat while you're writing? Now, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, what about the keyboard? <laughs> I have kids, man. There are so yeah, many that things not on that issue. keyboard. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. <laughs> a little Cheeto underneath. Yeah. H is okay. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Well, then, um, okay. So, Melissa, do you want to ask the, I guess, actually the last question? That wasn't, if I said yeah. that was the last question, that wasn't the last question. Yes. The writing quirk one comes up every often, but the yeah. one we ask every single person, because I think it's a great question to end on is a piece of advice that you can share with aspiring authors or just curious listeners who might want to know something about the writing process that you've picked up along the way, something to advise our readers and writers out there. Yeah. So this actually comes from one of my mentors um, in the MFA program. She did a lecture on memoir, but it it applies anywhere. Hmm. But she was talking about how a well-written memoir should be more about the reader than it is about you. And I think that's true of all writing. Once you write it and you put it out there and it's meant for an audience, it's for the audience. Yeah. Um, And I think if you think of that as your writing, um, if it's something you want to have reach an audience, I mean, obviously there's like, writing in a diary that can be for you that's totally cool but when you are trying to write for an audience I think it's really important to remember that once you release it out to that audience that audience now owns it and it's in some ways no longer your story Hmm. um so that's my philosophical answer my (laughs) more practical answer is have a notebook and a pencil by your bed at all times oh yeah because if you're like me you like are falling asleep and you think of something that's going to fix a problem in your story and then you tell yourself you will remember it when you wake up and of course you never do Mm -hmm. (laughs) so or you have to like go find the pen because you can never fall asleep until you get it written down so it's really fun to write down those things sometimes it's an idea and you wake up and you read it and you're like, hmm, I was real tired and that's dumb. Right, <laughs> it right. sounded interesting <laughs> at the time, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's what you were looking for. So I love having a piece of paper right there to write it down. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. I recently did that. I have not ever done that before, but I do. I, I now have a pad and I have a pen that lights up so I don't wake up my spouse. Nice. And, oh, um... A light up pen? <laughs> yes. I have a glitter pen, but a light up pen for the night writing, that... That is good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Last time I wrote something down, I had my youngest in bed with me and I couldn't find a pen. And I pulled out what ended up being a highlighter and wrote on a piece of paper. And it was really fun trying to decipher it in the morning. (laughs) Oh, good. I thought you were going to say you wrote on your your youngest. Oh, no. No, I didn't. That's good, too. Yeah, I think that would have woken him up, though. And. Oh, then man. I would have had to deal with the yeah. child who was yeah. awake right. in the middle of the night. The story has a <laughs> yeah. sentence across his forehead or something. There you go. I love that. I and next time I run out of paper beside my bed, I'm just going to turn right on my husband. <laughs> yes. Uh, tell <laughs> me that was me my know idea. How that goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. All right, Tashney. Well, thanks so much for submitting your story. Um, we are so excited to be getting the end of the magazine and to talk with you about it in the process. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. It was. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet both of you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, 
please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash Onyx Publications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.